Would you take your Bible with me and turn to, uh, to Psalm 110 this morning? Uh, we're going to continue uh, exploring Psalms. Today is the final Sunday of Advent. Uh, this week is Christmas, uh, Sunday or uh, Thursday evening at 4.30. I hope you'll join us back here for our Christmas Eve service. Uh, that'll be online as well, uh, so you can tune in there um, Thursday at 4.30 p.m. Uh, online or in person, we're going to celebrate the coming of Jesus Christ breaking into our, breaking into our world. We'll, uh, we'll sing in that time, we'll, we'll consider God's word together, and we'll, we'll think about the coming of Jesus Christ in the world to save sinners. Uh, we'll look forward to his return. Those will be the goals of that, that evening. Our time this morning is going to be geared towards and set us on a trajectory towards the Lord's Supper. Uh, I hope that you saw the elements as you came in outside the door and picked those up. And if you didn't happen to pick those elements up, feel free at some point in the sermon to head back there and and grab those. Uh, You won't be a distraction or a disturbance by any means. Again, we're exploring Psalms this Christmas season together. And the Psalms that we've considered so far, uh, we started in 13, we moved to 40, then we went back to 8. These Psalms, and today we're in 110, these Psalms have had a a theme or several different themes uh, that we wanted to intersect with as we consider Christmas. Uh, The the first is the theme of waiting, and we saw that clearly in Psalm 13 and and Psalm 40, the theme of waiting. Because for centuries past, leading up to the incarnation of Christ, leading up to Jesus' coming in the flesh uh, that we celebrate on Christmas, uh, the people of God were waiting. And so, uh, and now, even now, we as God's people are waiting for, his, for the second coming of Christ as, as well. And then, in the Psalm 8, and then this morning in Psalm 110, uh, these psalms have clear elements uh, and understanding of things that have been fulfilled in Christ's coming. This psalm, Psalm 110, is a psalm uh, that uh, finds much of its fulfillment. It's often quoted in the New Testament and finds, uh, well, actually all of its fulfillment in the person of Jesus Christ. So, let me read this psalm and then we'll dive in and consider the elements contained therein. Psalm 110, a psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely in the day of your power in holy garments. For the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgments among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Again, this psalm, Psalm 110, is a psalm that's often quoted in the the New Testament. Uh, Especially that first verse. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And through this psalm, Jesus Christ is clearly exalted because it has its, such a clear fulfillment in the person of Jesus Christ. Uh, we find that it has a, a substantial, a substantial uh, or has substantial implications for Christmas. 
Because when we think about Christmas, oftentimes we think about baby in the manger. Uh, We think about nativity scenes. We celebrate the Son of God coming to earth in human form. We think about angels in the sky, shepherds in the field, three wise men coming to to celebrate the, the king. But we would ultimately be remiss to leave it there. Because Jesus didn't just come to be born. He came to die and to take his life back up again. And Jesus didn't come to be doted upon, but to declare that he was going to reign on David's throne for eternity. And so when King David writes this, he writes it as one who would receive or has received a covenant from God. And the covenant that God made with David was that he would establish his throne for eternity. And the way that that covenant is fulfilled is that promise is fulfilled is in the person of Jesus Christ who is the eternal king. It's difficult to to establish a throne for eternity with men and men who who may come and who may die and who may disappoint. But Jesus Christ, the the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world sits upon David's throne and he will reign there for eternity. King David, again, is the author of this psalm, of Psalm 110. And that immediately makes the psalm intriguing. Because, just read the opening line of the psalm, and you see, my Lord says to my Lord, or the Lord says to my Lord. That's an intriguing start. Because the immediate question that you and I should be asking, we see a psalm of David, the Lord says to my Lord, but the Israel's greatest king why would he write about one greater than himself? Jesus actually poses that question in the New Testament, recorded in the Gospels. He actually poses that question to the religious leadership. And they ultimately have no answer to the question. I've been reading some ancient Near Eastern history, Greek history, and in those accounts, um, we don't find kings... This would almost be contrary to what it means to be king. We don't find examples of kings who would write about another who's greater than them. It just doesn't happen. Kings are the highest authority among their people. They're always looking to expand their territory. They're always looking to grow their kingdom. They're always looking to subject more people to themselves. And they're always looking to be the greatest. A lot of kings in the ancient Near East just gave themselves the title the great or were given that title by people who found them to be great. And so this again is Israel's greatest king, King David. He's writing here in Psalm 110 about his Lord, about someone who is greater than him. Why would would any king write what David writes here? I want to explore that question, and that's kind of what we'll do in our time this morning. But before we explore that question, let's just consider where we're at. Buffalo City Church, people who are here this morning, people who joined us in the 9 a.m. service as well, consider where we stand right now. As a church, as the people of God here in Jamestown, North Dakota, I don't want to beat this drum because we beat it a lot, And but the... the uh, 2020 has been a, a difficult year. It's been a challenge. Mark just prayed about the challenges of 2020. But here's the thought, and I don't want you to ignore going into this psalm 
into a further explanation of this psalm without just at least being in this headspace a little bit. Uh, Christmas this Friday, right? We're going to celebrate Christmas Eve here together, and then you're going to celebrate Christmas on Friday. But the reality for many of you, and this may not be true for all of you, but the reality for many of you, at least people that you know uh, well, is that that the table on Christmas Day is going to probably look a little bit different than it does usually. Uh, for several reasons, you're going to look up and see people that you love who, who are missing around the table and who you wish that would be there, but just simply aren't because of travel restrictions or because of quarantines or because of illness or, or because 2020 was their last year here on earth. And the question when you look up and look around at the table, when you think about it and when you consider it, what do you need to know? What do you need to believe? And I think this is what Psalm 110 does really well for us. Because you're going to look up and see people missing, potentially. You're going to wish that a loved one was there who just can't be there. And you'll, you'll be tempted to say, 2020 is almost over. Or you'll be tempted to say, it'll be, it'll be better next year. Or, or you'll be tempted to put your hope in vaccine distribution or tempted to rely on guidelines and restrictions. Or, or you'd just be tempted to give yourselves over to, to anxiety and frustration and despair and sadness. What, what I don't want you to hear me say as we go and consider this psalm together this morning, what I don't want you to hear me say is that these things, feelings, um, thoughts, hopes, practices, that any of those things are illegitimate. But, but I, do, I do want you to hold them in the proper light. And I think the proper light for us is, at least in part, found here in Psalm 110. Because those things are temporary solutions or temporary feelings to temporary problems. A temporary problem that stems from a much larger problem. And the much larger problem, you and I both know this, the, the much larger problem is, is our sin that lurks in the corners of our hearts. That problem can't be handled by governments. That problem can't just be handled by doing the right thing. And so this psalm describes a king. Again, not a king like David, but one that even David saw as greater than himself. Not an earthly king, but a king is who is uniquely appointed by God. A king that won't just enact better policies or lower our taxes. A king that won't just bring about wealth for the nation, but a king who will establish God's rightful rule on David's throne for eternity. That's what this psalm is about. And when we look around the table and see people missing that we love, we need to be reminded who the king is is. We need to reflect on the solution that God gives to us in the person of Jesus Christ. We don't need to reflect exclusively on temporary solutions to temporary problems. Rather, we need a conquering king who will sit on David's throne for eternity, who will not be opposed. And not only will he not be opposed externally, he will not be opposed even in the hidden corners of our hearts.
So let's think about the psalm together. There's going to be three points here that we see in this psalm, and we could probably probably find more to say about it because there's a lot here. Our first point we're going to find in verse one. I mean that that the king's authority, uh, the king's the source of the king's authority is Yahweh. And then the second point we're going to consider is that all people will be under the king's rule. Verses 2 and 3 demonstrate this, and then also verses 5 through 7. And then third, uh, which is kind of represents the peak of the psalm in the middle, in verse 4, we see that the priest is, or the king is also declared to be priest. We'll unpack that when we get there. But the first point just in verse 1, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The source of the king's authority is Yahweh. Kalin pointed this out last week, but when you see Lord in all capital letters in the text, it's referring to, it's referring to God's personal name, which is Yahweh. And Yahweh means I am, or I am who I am, or I am what I am. And there isn't necessarily a perfect translation for this. But in ancient Israel, this name wouldn't even be spoken by God's people out loud. No one would say it. They would substitute other things in its place. And even our Bibles, to show reverence for the name of God, we just put LORD in all caps. But when you see that, you should be thinking this is God's personal name, which is Yahweh. And so in this psalm at large, we see the, the name of God mentioned three times. And each time, there's direct action associated with it. Verse 1, the Lord says, verse 2, the Lord sends, and then verse 3, or verse 4, excuse me, the Lord has sworn. But we really don't need to go past verse 1 to see the source of the authority that, that Yahweh has bestowed upon the king. The Lord Yahweh says to my Lord, the my Lord here that King David writes about is this great king. Yahweh tells this one, this king, to sit at his right hand. Now, now you, uh, now you, you've heard some important person call someone else their right hand man. Someone who sits at their right hand is someone who the the person with authority grants authority to. A right hand man does the very thing that the authority figure does. A right-hand man is authorized to speak or to act for the one who sends him. Speak or act for the one who, who tells him to sit at his right hand. And so the right hand demonstrates place of importance. So when we see this, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand, we see a, a place of prestige, a place of, place of prominence given to to this great king. The right hand, again, a place of importance. Jacob, the patriarch in the book of Genesis, who, who God would later rename Israel, had 12 sons. His, his wife Rachel gave birth to Israel's final son, Benjamin. And Benjamin, seemed, Benjamin, the name means son of my right hand or son of my right side. This is a position of prominence. Benjamin had a special place in Jacob's heart. The Apostle Paul tells us in the New Testament that he is of the tribe of Benjamin. And because he's of the tribe of Benjamin, has reason to boast in the flesh, although he refuses ultimately to do so. 
but being of the tribe of Benjamin carried great weight. And the point here, though, is that Benjamin held a place of importance for his father Israel. And the king, described here in Psalm 110, holds a place of importance for Yahweh. But a right-hand man, or the, the one who sits at the right hand, speaks and goes not to do his own will, but to the will of the one who sets him at his right hand and sends him out. So here in Psalm 110, David tells us of this great king that is at the right hand, or that is the right-hand man of Yahweh. And Yahweh is eternal. So this king's authority is eternal. It doesn't change, doesn't go away, doesn't wax, it doesn't wane. And because Yahweh is the creator and the rightful owner of all things, so this king's importance will never be diminished. It'll never, never change. Before, before we move on to the next point, though, and this will kind of lead us into the next point, um, let's note that sometimes as Christians, we talk about King Jesus wrongly. Because if, if it's Yahweh who grants the authority or is the source of the authority for King Jesus, what we cannot say then as a result is that we are the ones who validate that authority. Here's what I mean. The language of make Jesus your king has crept into our vocabulary. And so, someone might say, make Jesus the king of your life. But that misses... <laughs> That ignores this psalm altogether because it's not saying you have the authority to make him king. It says that God, Yahweh, the great I am, has already established him as king forever. The authority of King Jesus doesn't come from you. It doesn't come from me. If we were to all deny that Jesus was king here this morning, it would not shake or change anything about Jesus' rule. Because it comes, the source of his power, the source of his authority comes from Yahweh, and he sits at his right hand. King Jesus is not threatened by anyone's failure to acknowledge him as king. And why? Why is that? Because his authority comes from an infinite, eternal, all-powerful, all-knowing, unchanging creator God. And it is Yahweh who puts the king's enemies at the king's feet. And so that leads us then into verses two through three, or two and three, and then verses five through seven. The, we see here that all people will be under the king's rule. All people will be under the king's rule. So look at verse two. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Again, Lord, all, all caps. So this is Yahweh. Sends forth your the, the your there is referring to this great king, your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. The, the scepter is a symbol of ruling and reigning. And so he's saying, I'm sending out the scepter. I'm sending out your rule. I'm establishing your rule and your, your reign. And then at the end of verse two and into verse three, we see that there are two groupings of people given, right? So the first is your enemies, the enemies of this great king, and then your people. Two groupings of people. First, at the end of verse 2, rule in the midst of your enemies. The, the king will stand in the midst of his enemies and he will rule them. 
despite their lack of acknowledgement of his kingship, he is going to rule. He will still rule. His authority comes from Yahweh, not from the acknowledgement of men. And when men and women say that Jesus was not who he claimed to be, or when they deny that he exists altogether, when they make a mockery of him in their speech or actions, Jesus is still king. And then in verse 3, we meet the king's people. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. This is, a, this is an incredible verse. Um, just sitting here reading it. Your people, the king, we're going to get to this in a moment, but the king sets his people apart through his priestly work. Essentially, he offers himself up as a sacrifice for his people in order that his people will be his people. We'll talk about that when we get to the third point. But, so he sets his people apart. So these are his people now. They will offer themselves up freely. They will follow freely as his people. They will give themselves over wholeheartedly. And by wholeheartedly, I mean as those who have received a new heart that is given to them as new creatures. We as God's people in this room have received new life in Christ and yet there are moments in our lives, hidden corners of our hearts, where we resist the kingship of Christ. Where we'd rather do it our way. Where we'd rather think to ourselves, uh, you know what? God says that I should live my life in a particular way, but I think I'd rather do it this way, and we resist in the, corner, uh, in the corners of our lives. Or we see the commands of Christ and we do them begrudgingly. We live in a way that, that says, this, this doesn't seem right, but I guess I'll do it anyway. In the corners of our hearts, we resist. But in the day of his power, in the day that Christ returns, he will, we will, offer ourselves to the king freely. Sin and death will be no more, and those corners of our hearts will be cleaned out. And then it refers to holy garments. This is the righteousness that Christ clothes us in. All of this is an impact in the New Testament, and yet we can see clearly that David is beginning to understand, or has a beginning. Your people will offer themselves freely because of the new life that Christ has offered to his people to set his people apart. And when he returns, clothed in the righteousness of Christ, we will acknowledge the king fully as king. The second half of this verse is or uses some pretty interesting language. And but I think it's really important that from the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. Now this is pretty poetic. From the womb of the morning. This is a new day. A new day is like a new birth. It's like the beginning of something refreshing and substantial. The dew of you, your, your youth will be yours. And I think what we can glean from this is that the reign of the king is refreshing and it's beautiful and it's full of promise. 
dew in the morning, at the dawn of a new day. It refreshes the earth. It provides plants with water. It sparkles as the sun comes up over the horizon. This is the reign of King Jesus. It's more beautiful than a sunrise. It's more refreshing than the morning dew. And it's more promising than a new day. Please stop for a moment and think about that. What have you been chasing to refresh you? What have you been chasing that you think will promise you a fresh start or a new new day? What politician can provide a new dawn? I mean, coming on the tail end of an election, we hear this all the time. Right, like turning the page, setting things right. Are you kidding? What, what set of laws can deliver this kind of refreshment? What, what temporary circumstance here on this earth can promise this kind of beauty and hope? The reign of King Jesus is more beautiful than a sunrise. It's more refreshing than the morning dew. It's more promising than a new day. Nothing on this earth can do these things. You and I are longing for them. We want them so badly. And I, this week, the, the week of Christmas, you're likely going to give yourself to things that you think can do this. But it, it can't. Only the reign of Christ, the King, can. Move into verse 4 though, and we're short on time, so I'm going to run through this. But verse 4 introduces to us a new concept. It's a merger between Christ's kingship and his priesthood. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So what's all this about? What is, what is Yahweh, why does Yahweh swear this? The, Melchizedek is a character that we find in Scripture Um, but isn't really talked about very much. In fact, the number of verses that talk about Melchizedek are very small. And yet, King David latches on to to this character here. Uh, The first mention of Melchizedek is in the book of Genesis in chapter 14, where Abram, uh, who God would later rename Abraham, meets Melchizedek, and Melchizedek blesses Abraham. Melchizedek is the king of Salem, uh, which is the king of peace. And Genesis 14, 18 tells us that he was a priest of the God Most High. Melchizedek is both a priest and a king. I wish I had more time to unpack this because there's so much here. But uh, Melchizedek is given no backstory. He's given no lineage. He just shows up in Genesis 14 and then he quickly departs. We're, he doesn't, we're not even told that he leaves. He just, it was just, the text just stops talking about him. But in Genesis 14, we're told that Abram gave Melchizedek a tenth of everything that he had. He gave him a tithe. So Melchizedek blesses Abraham or Abram, and Abram gives Melchizedek 10% of everything. Now, Abraham... We have to realize Abraham is held in high regard among the people of Israel. Like God chose Abraham. He just plucked him out and said, this is my guy. God set him apart. 
And God made Abraham the father of many, covenanted with Abraham, saying like, I'm going to make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. And yet when Abraham meets Melchizedek, it, it's Melchizedek that blesses Abraham, not the other way around. The author of Hebrews in chapter 7, uh, verse 7 says, it is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. Talking about Melchizedek and Abraham's interaction. And so when Abraham gives Melchizedek a tenth of everything, he's acknowledging Melchizedek's superiority. So when David writes in Psalm 110 about uh, his Lord, he's saying that there needs to be this merging between kingship and priesthood. And this is true in King Jesus. Jesus is given his kingly authority by Yahweh to rule over everyone. And for his people, he becomes the perfect mediator. The Old Testament priesthood was established in order to make God's people right with him. God's people were sinful. We're no different. And so the priests would offer sacrifices to God to pay for sin. And we need payment to be made for us also. And so Jesus offered himself up a sinless, spotless lamb of God. And he made complete payment for our sin. But he doesn't need to keep doing that. The priests in the Old Testament had to keep offering sin or sin sacrifices over and over and over again. But Jesus is the once and for all sacrifice. The author of Hebrews in chapter 7, in verse 27, writes, He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sin and then for, for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. This means that Jesus is the great high priest and is the order of Melchizedek. Again, there's a lot more that we could chase here, but we don't have time to do it. But this is the point that I want you to walk away with. Jesus, King Jesus, reigns perfectly. King Jesus reigns perfectly over his people after offering himself up to make his people his people. The only way that we are God's people is through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Jesus reigns perfectly over his people after offering himself up in order to make them his people. So this morning as we move to the Lord's table, I think we need to consider the implications that this has on Christmas. If we go back to verse 1, this is the, the verse that oftentimes gets quoted in the New Testament. This verse describes a position of prominence, the right hand of Yahweh. This is Jesus' rightful position. But when we get to Christmas, we see this scene of a, a baby in a manger, in a stable, in an animal feeder, born into poverty in a small and forgotten place. The question is, does this look like the one who Yahweh will say, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool? It's counterintuitive. It doesn't make sense. There's another way that we would design it. In John 13, Jesus, his earthly ministry is wrapping up. He has the cross in view. And when we get to John chapter 13, we are told that Jesus washed the feet of his disciples. And when Jesus came to Peter, 
When he came to Peter, Peter said, you should never wash my feet. Why would, why would Peter say that? Because of Psalm 110, to interact with the feet is, is inferiority. Why would Yahweh say to the king in Psalm 110 that he would make his enemies his footstool? Because a footstool is in complete subjection to the one whose feet are on it. You're going to go home, watch some football, put your feet up on the coffee table. You would never say that the coffee table has more value or worth than you do. I made my, I built my coffee table. What are you talking about? But here was the one who Peter had grown to believe was the fulfillment of Psalm 110. And he was at his feet. Jesus was at Peter's feet. Peter was Jesus' enemy. It's not like they didn't get along. They, they were friends. There was no relational rift here, or at least not one that lasted. But because Peter was a sinner by nature and choice, and so are, were the rest of the men in that room, and so are we, the disciples rather belonged to the foot of Jesus, but they found themselves in a complete role reversal. Jesus is David's Lord. He is Peter's Lord. He's our Lord. Not because we say so. He's given authority by Yahweh from eternity past in order that all his people, all his creation would be subjected to his rule. But the way it would come about isn't the way that we would have done it. God taking on flesh, flesh that gets tired and ached, flesh that needed to sleep and eat, flesh that would age, flesh that would be torn to shreds and hung on a cross. This king would be subjected to complete humiliation, taking the sin of mankind on himself, making a once-for-all sacrifice, becoming a great high priest, a priest in the order of Melchizedek, and would then be given the name that is above every other name. All his people will freely follow him. All his enemies will be put at his feet. And through his sacrificial death, through his sacrificial death, death died. 1 Corinthians 15, 25-27 tells us that death is the final enemy. For he, this is Jesus, must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. All those who oppose Christ will be brought to Christ's feet in subjection. And the last enemy, which is death, will no longer have any power. It is in complete subjection to Christ the King. So here we are again, Thursday, Friday of this week, may not look like the way that you want it to or the way it has in the past. But hope is here in Psalm 110. The king is reigning. The king is reigning. He will bring things to a close. Opposition will not threaten his throne. In fact, he's seated. He's not even standing up. It's such a small threat that he doesn't even need to get to his feet. He simply, simply kicks them up. His enemies in complete subjection to the will of the Lord.